0: Good morning and welcome. My name is Theodore McBride. I'm uh, one of the community group leaders here at uh, Sojourn, and I'm just super excited and glad that you're here this morning. Now, parents, if you have kids, that's really exciting. We have some activities in the back uh, for them that they can be doing throughout the service if they want to take you know, notes or color. There's a table right back there, and you can uh, hook them up back there. But whether or not there are kids here, It's a great thing to be gathering with God's people in the Lord's house this morning. You know, I'm I'm just really excited that the kids are here. They are a joy and a blessing. My wife and I have five kids, and I work from home. So the the distraction of little voices and pitter-patter of feet is, I'm able to to zone it out pretty good. I tell people the house could be burning down, and and I'd still be plodding away at the computer. So let's let's enjoy this time with our kids. Um, Let's let them just enjoy this time and see us worship the Lord. Um, and kids? Children? Talking to you? <laughs> now, um, yeah, if you want to be part of the service, you can, uh, you can take notes. And one of the ways that you can do that is if you get a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle. On one column, write like a word like new. And then the other column, write the word Jesus. Because I'm going to be using those words a lot throughout my sermon. And every time I say the word new you put a tick mark. And every time I say the word Jesus, you put a tick mark. So at the end of the sermon, hopefully, when you compare with your friends, you'll all have the same amount of of tick marks. Or you'll see who's paying the most attention. Okay. And so now, if everybody would uh, join me in prayer, that God would bless the preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord, as your children, as your family, that was purchased by your son. God, we come to you with our children as well, and we ask that you would move and work through the preaching of your word to soften hearts, to change minds, to make a new, that gospel promise of a new covenant. Lord, we ask that you would move powerfully with your Holy Spirit this morning, and we ask this not because of anything we can do, but because of the blood of your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible with you this morning, please turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will get one for you. There's one right there. And and don't worry about giving that back. If you don't have one, it's our gift to you. You can just take it home and just keep reading it. And so uh, let's all follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold the days are coming says declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord Is ready to vanish away. This chapter talks about that great and final covenant that God has with us. And when we say that something is final, there tends to be a certain amount of gravity or significance attached to that statement. There's not going to be any going back from that point, there's no additional anything. Final means the end. And this is my final attempt, my final answer, a final test. After final, there is, there's no more looking back. And sometimes we look forward to that finality, like the final day of school in the school year. I think everyone can recall that, that kind of the buzz of excitement in the air when school's about to end. And even the school takes on a weird smell when they get out the funky chemicals to clean it for the summer in anticipation of that final day. Or maybe you're not looking forward to the finality of something, like maybe the final day of summer, You know, just as you you are excited as you are about school ending, you may be dreading the final days of summer, because I'm sorry to say it, kids, I've been in the stores, I've seen the the back-to-school supplies. Well, whatever the case may be, when we say something is final, it marks the end of something. And this morning, as we look at Hebrews chapter 8, I want us to consider the finality of Jesus and what he has done. The book of Hebrews demonstrates over and over and over the supremeness and finality of Jesus and what he has done. Last week, we considered the the nature of his saving power. It saves to the uttermost. And this morning, we're going to consider and relish in the finality of what Jesus has done. He is that final king, that final priest, the final note in the symphony of God to bring about the redemption of a lost people. And so here's an overview, just brief overview of what's happening in this chapter. The first five verses of chapter 8 kind of set the stage for what's coming at the end. You know, what's about to come. Starting in verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is no ordinary priest. You know, while priests offer sacrifices and gifts, Jesus offered himself. His sacrifice was final. Note that it says that he is seated. Priests didn't rest. They were always busy moving, pouring, lighting fires, burning things. Jesus is shown here to be seated because there's no further need for sacrifices. Priests labored to make sacrifices for sin, whereas the work of Jesus is finished. And he isn't just sitting anywhere. He's at the right hand of the throne of majesty. That's the place for a king. And verses 2 through 5 build on this idea and support it. Because we see that Jesus is our minister in a true tent, not a copy. It says that that everything up until this point was a copy or a shadow. So this manner that Jesus serves in heaven is way more legitimate. It isn't a copy. It has greater value. It's the original. And then we get to verse 6, which says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Verse 6 tells us what it means to have Jesus as our mediator. If the priests on earth are associated with that first covenant, Jesus is associated as the mediator of the second, infinitely better covenant. And it's better because it's loaded with better promises. This morning, I want to look at those two covenants the first covenant given at Mount Sinai, and the second covenant given by Christ. And in this, we're going to see that there were problems, but then we're also going to see that there are problems that have been solved. So let's take a moment to to, to know what it looks like for God to have a covenant with his people. You know, covenants could loosely be defined by how God relates to us and what is expected of us in that kind of relationship. Ever since the moment that God breathed life into Adam— God has had a relationship with us, with his people. In this relationship, there are specific rules and promises. Throughout the Bible, he has told his people how to act and what happens whether they obey God's word or disobey it. Think of that very first time that God interacted with Adam and Eve. You know, he said, You may eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. How are they to conduct themselves? Well, they can eat from any tree but that one. And what are the consequences of disobedience? Well, if you eat that one, you're going to die. These interactions are covenants. And to put it another way, a covenant is like when, you tell, when your parents tell you, listen, you need to nap today, and if you're good and you sleep, you can stay up and watch a movie. But if you don't, if you disobey, you have to go to bed early. You know, I'm well aware of the fact that kids love to negotiate. But with God's covenants, Man man does not negotiate. There's no debating those terms of that covenant. It's a very one-sided agreement. God just kind of says how things are going to be. And the lawyer in me kind of bristles at that statement. You know, I don't like the idea of agreements or negotiations that are all one-sided. But when you consider what God is saying, when you see that his covenants are filled with grace and mercy, It makes that bristling go away at the heart of God's covenants. God's stated goal is this and and you can find this Throughout scripture when God covenants with people He always says I will be your God and you shall be my people That's the goal. That's the reason for the covenants. That's the end game for God's people From beginning to end the God of the universe has purposed to call a people and be their God And so when God's people were enslaved in egypt God graciously saved them from bondage. He purposed to be their God and they would be his people. And we see this graciousness in verse 9 when it says that he took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. That's the, the image of a parent leading a child. I mean, think about taking your kids across the street. You know, they're not paying attention. They're, they're stumbling. Their hands are sticky. So it's not really a pleasant experience to hold their hands all the time. But that's God watching out for us. He's guiding his people by grace. God's doing what it takes to be their God. And then he takes them to Mount Sinai, and that's where he gives them that first covenant. So this is the first covenant. In this covenant were the rules by which they were to live and the consequences of not following God. But then there's going to be a problem. And it wasn't a problem with the covenant And it's not a problem with a lack of grace. We've just seen that God acted graciously taking them out. No, the problem with the old covenant was with the people. Verse 9 continues with, "...for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no regard for them," declares the Lord. The first covenant problem was that the people didn't follow it. And when they didn't follow it, the bad things that God said would happen, happened. And so it can be no surprise when Israel turned from God they were judged their military defeated their children sold into slavery society ruined again this covenant's problem is not a lack of grace the problem is that it didn't provide the people with the inward ability to meet those external demands the law was external it demanded that they perform and act in a certain way but their hearts were corrupt and not at all inclined to keep God's law. I always get a kick out of going to REI. It's it's a dangerous place to go because there's so many awesome things there. You know, I walk in there and I see the clever gadgets and the trinkets and the the top-of-the-line stuff, and let's not even forget the fact they have a whole section devoted to starting fires without matches. Well, if I go in there and I buy the most expensive compass, the most fancy GPS unit, and all that fancy breathable camping gear and a a boat and i give it to a three-year-old and i give them some longitude and latitude coordinates and i say there's going to be treasure here and it's the most amazing treasure here's all the tools you need to find it go find it they are not going to get very far even though that gear is the best it can be even though it's perfect top of the line and the directions are clear you you know exactly where they're supposed to go and that goal is lucrative and desirable they're not going to find that treasure because they lack the physical means to put those things to proper use. And so with that first covenant, the requirements are good. You know, it's good to worship the Lord. It's good to offer Him your first fruits. And the goal? Being God's people? Being holy? Those are good, re- good goals. But the covenant was flawed by a people that lacked the capacity to keep it. It failed because the people failed. This is all well and good, you may be saying. But what does this have to do with me? I'm not under that first covenant. We are not under, like, a temple system of worship. We don't offer animal sacrifices or do purification rituals. That's true. But like the Israelites, we have hearts that are prone to wander, prone to fail. Sin, sadly, is unavoidable, with or without the law. And its wages are death. And all of us have been working overtime for those wages. And that's a huge problem. And what's more, while we may even recognize it as a problem, the Israelites had the law to show them it was a problem, saying, Yes, I've sinned. We lack the ability to make ourselves right before God. Verse 7 says that if the first covenant had been faultless, if it had been able to affect that change in their hearts, there would have been no need for a second. If sacrificing animals, burning incense, abstaining from foods, observing holiday, holidays were not enough to make the Jews right before God, why do we sometimes live like doing more good things than bad things will make us right with God. That we can somehow sway God and turn away his wrath by being better, praying more, doing more, or going to church. The bottom line is that we can't because we need that second covenant. We need that better covenant. We need those better promises. So let's take a look at the problems that are solved, at the solving problems nature of that second covenant because the jews could not uphold that first covenant god promised a new covenant the author of hebrews says behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will establish a new covenant the reason for that second covenant like i said was that the jews couldn't keep it you know sin continued and it's been a problem before the first covenant and it's going to continue to be a problem till the end of time But the good news in all of this is that our God is a pursuing God. If you think that kids can be stubborn and not give up sometimes, God never gives up. He has never wavered from that goal, to call a people to himself that he might be their God and they his people. And he does what he needs to do to make this happen. And so he gives that second covenant, even at a horrible cost to himself. That first covenant failed because it didn't function, it it, it didn't fail because it didn't function as it was designed. You know, it wasn't defective. Like I said, user error. So God essentially kind of issued a recall by decreeing a new covenant, deciding that being our God and making us his people was worth the cost of a new second covenant. He fixed the problem and he did it with finality. Finality. Because he fixed it with the blood-bought sacrifice of his only son in our place. And that's what it means to have Jesus as our mediator of a new covenant. He made it possible. That new covenant is found in verse 10. And as I read it, I want you to listen for what mankind, what's our obligation under this new covenant. What it is that mankind has to do in order to remain in covenant with God. Nothing. If you said nothing, give yourself a shiny golden star. We bring nothing to the table. We're not responsible to uphold any end of this covenant. Because as we've already seen, whatever it is that we have to do, we're going to fail. So God does the amazing thing. He does all that work for us. This is God doing what the law, which was weakened by our flesh, could not do. That first covenant was weakened because of our failings. So God takes our failings out of the equation. This is like, instead of fighting the shopping cart in the grocery aisle with the wonky wheel that keeps going off to the side, God just takes the wheels off and gives it new wheels. It's God hardwiring us so that his word abounds and abides in us. It's a work that only his Holy Spirit that abides in us can do. We don't learn God's ways so much as we are imbued with God's ways. That's why I love Love that biblical metaphor of being grafted into the kingdom of God. It illustrates that second covenant so well. Because when a plant is grafted, it literally, you can analyze the DNA, it literally becomes the plant that was grafted in. So if you take the seeds from an apple and you plant them, you're going to get all manner of fruit. But let's just say you get a red delicious, which I personally can't stand. I call them half truth apples because they're red, but they're not delicious. If you, if, you, if you get that red delicious, and it grows up into a sapling, and you cut it off, and you graft in a different apple species, like, say, a Granny Smith, from the moment of that graft, that tree will only and forever always produce Granny Smith apples. And you can take the DNA of the apples, and they will be same, the same as the parent apple tree. It's like a new tree. And so when God saves you, you're cut off from that old life you are dead to the world no more and god cuts you off sometimes that's painful but it's a good thing it's it can be scary and it can be uncertain while the graft is taking place but when god grafts you into his kingdom we become his children and the change produces godly fruit in keeping with this he does this by his promise in verse 10 This is how he does it. He puts his laws in our minds and in our hearts. Yes, that's the second covenant. God starts in our heads, and he gives us understanding of his ways and of his word. And then he continues, and he inscribes that word onto our hearts. It's almost like a twofold process. Faith takes place both in our minds and in our hearts. We must understand the truth up here and believe it and love it down here. That's saving faith that comes from the second covenant. Mentally assenting to the gospel without having a change of heart is not faith. The love of God and the desire for his glory must possess your heart as well. And this was me when I was younger. I would have said, I believe the Bible. I believe that there's a God. I know the Bible's true. But my heart, rock hard. And on the flip side, Saying that you love God and desire his will with all your heart means very little. If you're not doing that in response to what God has revealed to you about himself, saying a prayer to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior means very little. If you have no idea what it means to have him as your Lord and Savior. There are many in the world that would profess to love God and yet know little of him because they've not bothered to learn about the God of the Bible. When verse 6 says that this covenant was built on better promises, this is that promise. The promise of a change from within. We are not responsible for the changes or the actions because we are incapable of the changes and the actions. So using that REI example, instead of handing a three-year-old all that gear, telling him, that's the treasure, hop to it. The new covenant is it's like telling them, there's, a new tr- there's this amazing treasure. You don't need all that stuff. Take my hand, beloved son or daughter, and I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to lead you to that place. And I know exactly where that treasure it is. And when we get there, it's all yours. And if you're thinking, there's, there's no way. that I, I, just, I just can't see those changes. I can't see God doing that in my heart. Think again. God accomplishes this by writing his covenant on our minds and our hearts. And he does this for everyone, everyone that is a Christian. Verse 11 says that they, meaning the people of his covenant, shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is for all that are in Christ. There are no exceptions. No one's going to get left out. No one's going to be overlooked. We have God's promise that he will work the changes in us. We have his word, his promise, that he will produce the faithfulness in us that we are not able to produce. Brothers and sisters, rejoice in this fact, that if you know Jesus, if you count yourself as one who has put their faith in Jesus to make right your broken relationship with God, If this describes you, God is doing this work in you even now. He's writing it on your hearts and your minds. Paul writes to the Philippians that it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. So the test of whether or not you're saved, whether you're a partaker of that second covenant, is not, did I say some prayer? It's not, was I baptized? Do I go to the right church or do my friends or my family tell me I'm a Christian? Now, the evidence in your life of that faith is the fruit that your life produces. Genuine, saving faith will always impact our will and our affections. You may be inwardly speaking to yourself right now. Okay, yes, I believe in Jesus, but I just, I don't love him like I should. I know I should love him better. I let him down all the time. Brothers and sisters, I struggle with believing that God's promises are always better, that Jesus is better than what this world can offer, with not getting my own way all the time, wanting what my heart wants. And that, I'm not going to mince words with you, that's discouraging. And if I think of all the times that I've fallen, it's discouraging. But what I've come to realize is that I know I'm saved. A sign that God has changed my heart is the fact that those things bother me. I hate my selfishness, I hate my struggling. The the fact that I struggle is not the red flag. The big red flag should be waving when you are okay with your sin. When it doesn't bother you to do something wrong. When it no longer pricks your conscience or you think you don't even think twice about sinning. So the fact that you're troubled by your sin is a good sign that God has done, is doing, and will continue to do a work in your heart. He will reveal his law to your mind and indelibly etch it onto your heart. And you can take great comfort that our heavenly Father will be merciful. He says in verse 12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. This new covenant change is a change that causes us to increasingly reflect our character, setting our gaze toward his merciful character and not ourselves. It's my prayer that this text, this message, will encourage any struggling Christian to know that God's promise, his second covenant, is and will be fulfilled in your life. When we spend time in his word, time in prayer, time in fellowship, we don't walk away unchanged but we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Yes, you cannot change your heart. You cannot force yourself to change your affections. We can't please God without God stepping in and giving us the means to do that. The change needed to please God must come from God himself because we can never have that perfect obedience. And think about it. Even if we could have perfect righteousness in our own ability to do good, the second that we get proud of ourselves for doing that, pride. So, I would encourage you to pour your heart out to God. Who cares? You can seek Him through learning about Him in the Bible. And as your mind is transformed, God will also transform your heart to beat and sink with His desires and His will. And for those of you who do not know Jesus, if you can't say, With a resounding yes and amen that you possess saving faith, ask God for faith. Seek him in his word. Pray to him. Say, God, show me that you are real and present and want to know me. Pray that he would begin the process of wiping clean the slate of your life and begin to inscribe that new covenant onto your mind and heart. This better covenant. And this second covenant, like I said, is the last one it's the the final covenant. Because there's no more need for any other covenant. It has made the old obsolete. And we know that God is the one who makes this promise to us, not us making a promise to him. Jesus obtained this ministry for us, that when God forgives your sin, he does not just sweep it under the rug. He doesn't look away and say it's all good. Rather, he punished Jesus He brought the full weight of his righteous anger and wrath upon Jesus as he bore the sins of a people called by God. Jesus paid our debt in full. So, going back, when we read in verse 12, that I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more, it isn't that he forces himself to have a memory lapse, it's that we had an incredibly large debt. And Jesus took that penalty, that debt. He took it upon himself and he paid it in full. So that when God sees us, he's going to say, you don't owe me anything. That's the forgetting. Instead of seeing our sin, he sees the righteousness of Christ. This final covenant brought about the payment of our outstanding debt. And that means if you love Jesus, the size of your debt does not matter. So if you're a believer, look not to the constant failures in your lives but to the constant love of God despite our failures, to the constant pursuit of God amidst all difficult circumstances. And scripture is clear over and over again that as God's people, we are unfaithful. But praise be to God, praise his name, that he doesn't love us because we are faithful. He doesn't love us because we're good or attractive. He covenants to be our God. He covenants to love us. He chooses to do that. It's a decision that's outside of our influence. Church, never, never forget that. You are loved and you are chosen because of your identity. It's wrapped up with Jesus. And though you stumble and you fall, it's always going to be associated with Jesus and the work He's done. When my kids disobey me, and they do, they push my buttons. They know I'm angry, they know I'm upset, and they know that they've done wrong. But I've always endeavored to always make sure they know that I will forever love them, no matter what. I can't stop loving them. They're always going to be my kids. And so that's the way it is with God. You know, it's going to be bad news, awful news that we fail and that we stumble. But the better news, the good news, the gospel news, is that God didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us, that we might reach that end goal spoken of by God in verse 10. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That is power. Power. That is life-changing, profound. Meditate on this, that the God of the universe makes us his people. God Almighty wants a relationship with us. God has purposed to be our God, so he's not going to unlove us. So don't look to your failures, but to the fact that if you have saving faith, there is no sin so great that God will stop pursuing you and working in your life. There's no sin so awful, no shame, no guilt, no act so vile that it can't be covered by the blood of Christ. Because as we've learned, when there are problems that are, that are brought to the surface, like the first covenant revealed, even when those problems are our fault, God finds the workaround. He makes it happen. And that workaround was an innocent man hanging on a cross, his body battered, broken, and bruised, taking upon himself the punishment that belonged to us. That second covenant was ushered in the moment he gave himself up for you, for me. And as he uttered with complete finality the finest words in human history, once and for all time, it is finished. Praise God. Every week here at Sojourn, we celebrate that new, that better covenant that was set into motion ever since the Garden of Eden and it reached its end game at that last supper and on the cross. We remember that on the night which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, and you, I'm sorry, you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this is a shared act. This is a communal act. It's communion. We do this as a church family, not as individuals, not as spouses together. We do this as a body of believers. And there's nothing magical or mystical about this bread and grape juice. The beauty is in what they point to, that new and better covenant that's written on our hearts and our minds. And so when we eat of this bread and drink this cup we proclaim and remember that his sacrifice was the final sacrifice, the covenant that was built on better promises. And if you're a Christian, you can freely rejoice in the Lord, taking joy in the God of your salvation, rejoicing that God, the Lord, has forgiven your wickedness and will remember your sins no more. So, with this in mind, take a moment, examine your heart, examine your mind, and rejoice. And enjoy the fact that that new covenant is written down there. And it can't be washed away. It can't be removed. And when you come forward for the bread and juice, what Jesus has done on the cross will be spoken over you. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, we ask that you just remain in your seat for now. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship for those who have placed their hope, their trust, their faith in that sufficiency of Christ's blood to turn away God's wrath. And so while we're incredibly thankful that you are here today, please understand that this act of worship, this communion, is our corporate yes and amen to what Jesus has done for us. Please just take this time to ask God to illumine your heart and mind and to make clear your need for a Savior and allow you to take Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Almighty Father. God, you are so amazing and awesome and holy and pure. And God, I just love the fact that you are a pursuing God. The the breadth and reach of our sin can never outrun your grace and your goodness and your mercy to us in Christ. God, I thank you that you have done the impossible, you have done what we could not do, that you have given us new minds and new hearts. And God, I pray that we would use those new minds and new hearts to tell others about you, that we would take forth this gospel message, this good news, and that it would be in our minds and be in our hearts and it would flow through our life in godly fruit. God, bless us this week. Help us to walk with you and delight in you. In Jesus' name, amen.